to ask you a question as we jump in. What do you grieve the most that you believe has been lost in the last year and a half? <clears throat> Today I'm going to tell you another piece of the story. And this is just as a reminder, I said this last week, but this is what we're doing. We're looking at what happened to the people of Israel, because we know how the story goes, and the story goes like this, that when it came to that critical moment of faith, they bailed. They failed the test of faith, and they all died in the wilderness as a result. And so what we're doing is we're looking at what attitudes, what behaviors were in play leading up to that critical moment that led them to fail the test of faith. Out of a conviction that that moment wasn't just a one-off, and I said this last week, it wasn't just like a, a, you know, a bad day that the whole nation had simultaneously, but that there were some things leading up to that critical moment that disqualified them. Keeping in mind, and I said this last week, I'm going to repeat it again, that we have stated here at Church on the Rock that we believe that the promises of God are discovered in this way, growing in love for God, growing in love for the people around you, and motivated by love, uh, seeking to strengthen the relationship of those two, right? That's disciple making. God, you should meet this guy, and you should be friends, and I want to help make that happen. That's the invitation, and yet we acknowledge that many, uh, many do not lay hold of those promises, many die in the wilderness. As we looked at last week, the first mistake that people made was they grumbled. They complained sullenly. And probably my favorite word definition I've come across in quite some time, they muttered with discontent. They balked at God's methods and means, and they refused to trust him. What we're going to see today is that they actually took it a step further than that. It wasn't just complaining. It wasn't just grumbling. It wasn't just muttering and discontent. They went further. But before we look at that further, I want to give you a little bit of context. But here's the deal. Sometimes I have three points. Sometimes I have four points. Sometimes I have one point. Day, I'm not going to articulate the point, and you're going to have to hear from the Lord for yourself. What is the point? But here's the context. As a reminder, Exodus 2, verse 23, came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel and took notice of them. So why are the people of Israel where we find them at this point in our story? Because of the answer to their prayer, right? They had said to God, please rescue us, please save us out of this slavery. And so God intervened in a mighty way and brought them out of slavery and is taking them to the land of promise. That's why they're there in answer to their own prayers. In fact, I don't know if you remember this from a couple of weeks ago, 
But the golden calf that they made in Exodus 32, what did they give him credit for? This is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. What a nice cow. Why were the Israelites no longer in Egypt? Because they pleaded with God to be set free. And their journey to the land of promise via the wilderness was God's answer to their prayers. But of course, as soon as they left bondage, they encountered adversity. I would say minor adversity, but I don't want to judge. They encountered adversity, which is always the testing of our faith. At first they complained, they grumbled, but then they took it a step further. And as I've been kind of studying through this the last couple of weeks, this has, been, this has been good for my heart and a challenge for me. They took it a step further. They began to wish for the past. They began to long for the way that things used to be out of their discontentment. Look at this. Check this out. Exodus 14, 12. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Isn't this craziness? Remember, they're here as an answer to their prayers. And in facing adversity, they not only complain, but they say, we were better off in Egypt. Why did you bring us here? as if this was Moses' idea. But it gets more specific than that. Exodus 16.3, the sons of Israel said to them, this is to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread until we were full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this entire assembly with hunger. I don't know if you remember Egypt, but those pots of meat, I mean, those were great pots of meat, right? Do you remember when we used to have pots of meat? Numbers 11, which as far as the narrative goes, is a very short time after Exodus 16. Now the rabble who were among them had greedy cravings, and the sons of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat for free in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Do you remember the garlic? But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now I can get on board with most of that list. I don't remember the last time I longed for leeks. Wishing for the past is not just about my unhappiness with my current situation. It's acting on the belief that the solution to my current situation is actually behind me not in front of me. T. 
you remember how great our lives were in slavery? When we had cucumbers all day long? Wasn't that fantastic? It's acting on a belief that the solution, the best solution to my current situation actually lays behind me out of reach and a refusal to acknowledge that the solution may be in front of me and ahead of me. Do you remember your prayers from a year and a half ago? And have you considered that your current reality may in fact be the answer to those prayers? Meaning, do you realize that COVID might be your fault? What did you pray for? Did you ever pray, God, purify my heart and help me to depend upon you more fully? Did you ever pray, God, God, rid me of my unhealthy attachment to the approval and acceptance of others? I've prayed that prayer. Have you ever prayed, God, teach me to love those with whom I disagree? And God says, oh, I know how to do that. I'll give you some stuff to really disagree about and then teach you how to love. And we say, no, 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 not that way. That's not, no, that's not what, I'm sorry. There's been a misunderstanding. Um, I would like to learn how to do those things differently. I have prayed, God, strengthen the unity of the church. I have prayed, God, please help our church not to grow comfortable and complacent. So yes, I own responsibility for COVID. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, God, rescue us from this current situation. And he said, okay, let's go. And he led them on the pathway to the promise. And on that pathway, at the first sign of adversity, their entire perspective is, Everything was better the way it used to be. And do you understand that that perspective set them up to be disqualified when faith was required? They were knocked out. Scripture actually speaks directly to this mindset. Ecclesiastes 7.10 do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Michael Beard, uh, two years ago, gave us a, a really wonderful definition of wisdom as it's described in the scripture, and that is that wisdom is not just understanding and knowledge. It's not just knowledge applied to life, 
but wisdom is the capacity to take that knowledge, apply it to my life, and to predict where it's going to lead me. This is what will happen if I live this way, right? That's wisdom. Don't say that the former days were better than these, because that is not the perspective of wisdom. Let me address this personally. What is the life outcome that you're currently walking in or walking through that you didn't expect, that you didn't want, and that you wish could change? What has been the personal fallout for you? God looked down and saw Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And he gives him a wife. What a gift. I have one. What a gift. In the next conversation they have, Adam says, the woman that you gave me, she's the problem. If I had been left alone, at a personal level, this wishful thinking often plays out in powerful ways relationally. I wish that I could go back to a different time. I wish that I could go back to a time before these offenses were created. A parent can easily give in to the wishful thinking as kids get older. I wish for a more innocent time, an easier time. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's health. What's the life outcome that you're experiencing that you didn't want and that you wish you could change? Worst case scenario, it's actually wishing for my prior bondage, the pleasures of my former slavery, right? But when you respond with complaining that turns into longing, for something other than an encounter now with the God of the universe, then you're set up to miss the moment and what God is doing here and now. And the amazing thing is, is as the people stand on the boundary of the land of promise, and we've reviewed this, all the stuff that God promised them, that moment is so ripe with opportunity because that is the moment of God's sovereign design. He and his sovereign plan and his sovereign power has brought them to that moment. And in that moment, they're setting themselves up to be completely disqualified. How? Not just complaining, but from a place of complaint, looking backwards and saying, I wish I could go back. John Piper says, Occasionally, weep deeply over the life that you had hoped would be, grieve the losses, and then wash your face and trust God. You cannot solve the present challenge, the challenge that you face on any front today, you cannot solve the present challenge with the past. You cannot go back. And the longer that you allow yourself to linger with that kind of wishful thinking, 
the higher the potential that you will be disqualified in the current moment. That's on a personal level. What about collectively? How has the world changed in ways that you didn't expect, that you don't like, and that you wish you could change? Do you know that today it is no less true than it was 2,000 years ago? The fields are white for harvest, ready for the picking. And if my fundamental, most basic response to everything related to the last 18 months in particular, if my fundamental response is a longing to return back to life before that, I'm going to miss the calling of God on my life in this moment, the moment that he brought me to by his sovereign hand and in answer to my many prayers for his purposes and for my joy. If you are here this morning, and there's a few of you, if you are here and you're over the age of 50, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. God has given you a pathway, a sovereignly ordained pathway to impact the world that you live in. It's the mission of disciple-making. And when those who refuse the mission of disciple-making lament the way things have become, they stand condemned by their own observations. You've been invited to change the world, and you have not taken that opportunity. You dare not complain about the world and wish for a different day. I want to offer you this reminder, Isaiah 55. God says, here's the deal. Let me explain to you why this is so challenging. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways. In the same way that the heavens are higher than the earth, that is the distance between my ways and your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. The challenge that we face is we can only reference what we know. And we know the past, and we don't know the future, but God does. And he says, do you have the faith to believe that what I am doing and what I am leading to you, you toward, is not just fundamentally greater, it's exponentially, incomprehensibly greater. Trust me, now, trust me. End of Psalm 73, this isn't on the screen. The psalmist says, the realization of where my heart had wandered, my heart was embittered, I was pierced. I felt senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. And yet, you've been continually with me and you've, you've taken hold of my hand. With your counsel, you guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. And so who am I in heaven but you? 
and besides you, there's nothing on the earth that I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want to be clear about something. I in no way would seek to diminish the grief that you feel related to the unexpected outcomes that you've had to navigate in your own life. I would not pretend to know the weight of those things. And yet this I know for sure. This moment is redeemed for all of eternity by meeting Jesus here and now and taking my next step with him by faith. I say yes. So this is what I want to do. I'm going to take just a minute before we go into worship and have you just come before the Lord and say, God, how have I lost focus by looking backwards? And would you meet me now so that I can together with you look with hope and expectation towards what is ahead. Just take a minute.